0: Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus is speaking. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And our passage for this morning Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him, that being Jesus, to test him and said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, the Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone, be glory. Let's pray. Father, we quiet our hearts now. As we come to your word, Uh, we have sung of you, we have sung parts of your word. Uh, We've come to you with our gifts uh, in order to uh, support the ministry of 2028. We've worshipped you with our offering, and now we come to worship you with our minds, with our intellect. But Father, let our hearts be connected to our minds this morning. Let this not be an exercise just in learning or trying to understand something perhaps that we didn't know when we walked in, but rather, Father, may it be a time of worship where we leave having been transformed by the power of your word. Father, we don't pray for man's wisdom or for man's teaching. What I have to say is no important than anyone else's thoughts or comments. Father, we pray for your eternal truth to bore deeply into our hearts and into our minds. So I pray that you'd forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me be an obstacle this way this morning to what you want us to to know and to learn and to apply to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we uh, find ourselves this morning in the the fifth Sunday of a nine-week series on the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy and faithfulness. This morning we're going to look at that in the context of a story that has been around uh, since Jesus' day, but obviously it is one of the, the stories that a lot of people know, even if they don't necessarily know where it came from or, or know the, the, uh, the context behind it, the story of the Good Samaritan. We live today uh, not unlike the culture in which Jesus lived. We might be technolo- technologically light years ahead of where they were, but socially, economically, uh, the strata of our of our economics and our social culture are very similar uh, in that we are people that live primarily for ourselves. Uh, that is the uh, kind of the attitude of all of humanity. We tend to think about our ourselves first. Uh, we tend to think about ourselves second. We tend to think about ourselves third, and then eventually we get around to others. Now, we might include our family in that list and say, well, I love my immediate family, my, my wife or my husband and my children as much as I love myself. However, I would argue that if I got to follow you around for a week or you got to follow me around for a week, you could probably poke holes in that statement as well. I'm pretty sure that I love myself more than anyone else. I'm not proud about that, but it's the reality of the world in which I live, and it certainly is the reality of my heart. We live in a culture where we tend to live for ourselves and be a bit indifferent towards others. We lack care at times for others. This leads us to be a people with preconceived notions about those that are different than us, those who are strangers to us, those who perhaps live in a different culture, uh, have different traditions, uh, different symbols that uh, are significant in their lives. This is going to lead to misunderstanding, mistrust, even bigotry, and act of hatred. Our community, in short, not unlike any other community in the rest of the world, is short on genuine love and grace and compassion. So that leads me to the sermon in a sentence this morning, which is simply this. Our community needs disciples of Jesus who will live out the grace we profess to believe. It's one thing to say you believe something. It's quite another thing to live that way. It's one thing to say you're a follower of Jesus, it's quite another thing to actually look at his life and desire to be like him and to pray that God would change your heart, pray that God would transform my life, my attitudes, my priorities, my thinking, and make me more like Jesus every day. But there's no doubt about it, our world needs disciples who will live out the grace we profess to believe. How do we move in that direction? How do we grow? In our faith today. Some of us have been Christians a long, long time. Some of us have been disciples of Jesus for decades. Others of us have been a disciple of Jesus for days or weeks or perhaps a few months. But every one of us needs to grow and deepen in our faith until the day we see Him face to face. So, how do we grow in a way that allows our lives to live out the grace we profess to believe? I believe this passage gives us five. Uh, opportunities to look at our own hearts. First opportunity is this: if we're going to move in that direction, we need to be trusting and not testing. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up with the intention of putting Jesus to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The desire of the of the lawyer was not to be transformed. He was not impressed with Jesus to the extent that he thought he actually was who he claimed to be, which was the Messiah. If the lawyer really believed Jesus was the Messiah, he would have bowed before him. He would have spoken with deep respect and admiration and affection. But the lawyer's heard about Jesus. Perhaps he's even heard him teach from time to time. He's seen others test Jesus and fail a few times. And perhaps he's thinking, well, you know what? I was number one in my law school class, and Jesus hasn't come up against anybody quite like me yet. So he spent some time thinking about it. I have no question about that. Every lawyer I've ever talked to has said the same thing. Don't ask a question if you don't already know the answer. Am I right? Ladies and gentlemen who are lawyers, right? And I get an amen from a lawyer. I know it's hard for you. (laughs) Come on, Ricky, you can give me an amen on that, right? You don't ask a question, you don't know the answer. This guy... Thought he knew the answer to the question, right? And as we'll see in a minute, he was on the right road as far as his answer was concerned. But he was testing. He was not trusting. His desire was not for transformation or even affirmation from Jesus. He wanted to make his point. So every once in a while, I'll do something with my staff just to kind of check and see if anybody's listening or if everybody's kind of tuned me out. Not that that ever happens with my staff, but every once in a while, because I tend to blab a little bit, uh, I wonder if they're listening. So I walked into staff meeting last Wednesday morning, and that was the first day that we had our student ministry summer interns. So we have three summer interns with us uh, who are working with us for the summer. And I came in, and I sat down, and I was the last one in the meeting, everybody's looking at me, and I said, well, I see that we have uh, our summer interns here for the summer. Let me just say this, you interns need to work very hard at one thing this summer, being seen and not being heard. And I said it with that tone, right? And all the guys on staff started to chuckle, right? Because they kind of knew what I was doing. And, and all the gals on the staff looked at me like, if you don't change that, I'm gonna get up out of this chair, I'm gonna come over there and I'm gonna smack you in the head, right? <laughs> How dare you be so rude, right? And then I got a big smile on my face. I said, I'm just messing with you. I just wanted to see if anybody was listening, right? The, the curtness of this lawyer's comment digs deeply. It's meant to be, offensive. It's meant to put Jesus in his place. Now you could spend your life doing that. I could spend my life trying to put Jesus in a safe place at a safe distance, but my life will never be transformed. And I will always live for myself above everyone else. We need to learn to be trusting, not testing. Secondly, we need to be startled, not smug. Look at verses 26 through 29. And so uh, Jesus... Answers with a question, what's written in the law? How do you read it? So he says, Tell me what you think, and then I'll tell you what I think. So the lawyer answers again. He's got it, he has his answer ready to go. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answers him and he says, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Right? Do this, and you will live. That answer ought to unnerve you. That answer ought to startle you when you think about your own mortality and you think about what it takes to have life. Jesus isn't talking about a works salvation here. Jesus isn't giving this man a pathway to follow. It is literally impossible for the human heart that is broken by sin and corrupted by our rebellion against God to have any inclination to 100% of the time love God with all of our emotions, in the depths of our soul, with every strength of fiber in our being, and with our entire intellect. And by doing that, we'll love our neighbors as ourselves. It's literally impossible. Jesus is not creating a pathway. He's trying to wipe the smug smile off of the face of the attorney who thinks that he's got it figured out. And it should startle us this morning because just as the lawyer couldn't complete that, we certainly can't complete it either. And it has eternal consequences. Remember the question? The question was, how do I be a good guy and get along in my community? The question was wasn't how do I how do I make the most out of my 70 or 80 or 90 years on this planet? The question was, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus says, if you want eternal life, here's the pathway, and the pathway is impossible. So we're all doomed if that is the answer. You see, self-justification in God's eyes is an exercise in futility. It is simply impossible. And while the lawyer was book smart, he was certainly a fool if he thought that that was possible. And yet he doesn't leave it there. He says to Jesus in verse 29, Desiring to justify himself to Jesus, he says, and who is my neighbor? Now he's going to move the conversation in a different direction. He's, he's wanting to, to see what Jesus will say are the parameters for the folks to whom he's supposed to show this kindness. And Jesus takes the conversation in a very different direction and he begins to tell a story, which leads me to my third observation in this text is that if we're moving in this direction, we will begin to see compassion in our lives instead of complacency. So Jesus begins by telling the story. Now, a lot of, a lot of uh, I'm gonna go down a side for just a second. A lot of commentaries call this a parable, but there's no place where the scriptures say that this is a parable. So this could have been a true story. This could have been, Something happened to a friend of Jesus. It could have been something happened to Jesus. Who knows? But this is the answer to the question in a story that will kind of, kind of shake the foundations of our self-justification. It says this, man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 17-mile trip, and you, you kind of got to go through the country to, to get to Jericho, so it would be a good place for kind of robbers to hang out and ambush people. And sure enough, that's what happens. They fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion, not complacent. Complacent means I can't be bothered or inconvenienced. I might help you from time to time if it doesn't take too much, but if I don't really experience or understand your pain or your struggle or your suffering, chances are I'm gonna be more worried about my pain and my struggle and my suffering, and it might be too hard for me to help you. Therefore, I become complacent about your needs. Complacency never says, what if I were in this situation? What if it was me on the side of the road or one of mine? The priest who's walking down the road, the very religious person, he has good reason not to to help this man from his religious point of view of the world because if he touches him and the guy's actually not half dead, he's actually all the way dead, then the priest, according to the ceremonial law, is defiled for about a month and he has to go through a lot of expense and a lot of time and effort to, to do the things that the law required for him to not be ceremonial unclean. And so he's like, I just, I can't, I can't chance it. Boy, I'd love to help him. Loved to, love to take care of that guy. Maybe when he got to the next town, he might have found the local sheriff and said, hey, I passed this guy. You might want to send somebody out to check on him. Levite, kind of the same thing. Two guys who claim to be very religious in nature can't be bothered. Boy, how often does that describe my life? How often do, is that what I see looking back in the mirror when I look in it? And the sense of complacency that that never considers you know, if that was me on the side of the road, what would I want somebody to do? If that were one of my kids, one of my family members, how, how would I want someone to react? No, there's a, there's a sense in which I can't be bothered. But not this, not this uh, Samaritan. He had compassion. He felt something in his heart and in his mind. He was stirred to action, which we'll come to in just a moment. But, but compassion, first and foremost, is an attitude. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of looking at the world. Uh, our pastors on staff, Daryl and, and, and Corbett, have this in spades. They have a lot of deep compassion for people. I remember seven years ago now when my, when my dad died, uh, when Anton showed up. A lot of you guys know Anton Hoffman, who, who was our pastor of care and retired. And I remember Anton showing up at our back door you know, just as soon as he found out. I mean, I, I don't think the word had been out for a half an hour, and there's Anton in my back door and we opened the door and I could tell by the look in his eyes. I could just see it, right, in his eyes that he had compassion, that he felt something, right? And, and I want to be more of a compassionate person, but I'll be honest, I, I got to kind of work at it. I, I, it takes me, I, I've said this before, when I come to your hospital room, if I come to your hospital room, say that was nice of Tom to stop by, right? When Anton would come, you would say, thank you God for sending someone who can actually help me, right? Because he just he just has this, compassion is heart. Daryl, Corbett, those guys have this compassion in their heart, but it's an attitude first and foremost. So if I want to have my life transformed, if I really want to live what I profess, I believe I need to pray that God would give me a heart of compassion that definitely and, and seriously and significantly cares for others. So I'm trusting I'm not testing I'm startled by, by the, the, the mountain I could never climb. Uh, instead of being smug in my own self-righteousness, uh, I'm praying that I would be a compassionate person and not uh, complacent. And fourthly, to move in this direction means I'm going to be active and not passive. Look at verse 34. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The first thing that this Samaritan did was he ignored the bias that the world projected on his relationship with this man because this man was a Jew and the Samaritan was was a Samaritan and they hated each other. They lived in close proximity with one another but they never spoke to one another. They never engaged with one another. They uh, They never partied together and they never worked together. They never took on a cause together The Jews felt the Samaritans were less than uh, what they were, and so they didn't want to have anything to do with them. In Jesus' day, if you went from Jerusalem up to Galilee, if you went in a straight line, if you went the shortest route, you would go through Samaria. The vast majority of Jews would cross over the Jordan River, and they would go up, and they would go back in to get to Galilee, and they'd go about about 10 miles out of their way, which if you're walking is, is a lot of extra time, but they would do that simply so they wouldn't have to let their feet Touch the dirt of Samaria because that was repulsive to them. Think about the racial divide in our country in, in, in the past and even currently today. That's what we're talking about on a deep, deep level. It's cross burnings, right? It's white hoods. It's some people getting to drink out of this drinking fountain, but other people not. It's, it's, it's a sense that some are better and more worthy of human rights than others. It's, it's, a, it's a deep-seated bias, even a hatred. Not to pick on lawyers, but, um, you know, the joke, what, what's a, a lawyer at the bottom of the ocean, right? It's a good start, right? You know, it's that. Uh, think about it for a minute, right? Um, and trust me, they tell plenty of pastor jokes and they should. Now, I, I don't, I, actually, I don't hate lawyers. I, the lawyers I know actually like them a lot. But, but think about somebody you really despise. And think about seeing them in a place where they're really hurting. And think of how easy it would be to simply ignore that pain and be inactive, and go on your way and justify yourself by saying, Well, if it was somebody that really mattered, I really would have took the time to care. But this man ignores the bias of his culture, he ignores the bigotry that the world says would be appropriate, even right for him, and he becomes active and notice what he does he he bound up his wounds now. I don't know about you, but I have a a little teeny tiny first aid kit in my car. Uh, I have a little flashlight in my car. I've I've got I've got little glasses cleaners in my car because sometimes my glasses get fogged. I don't have a big giant first aid kit in my car. I don't have bandages in my car. I have little like like you know little ones like if you cut your finger I can help you right. But somebody that that's been in in beaten half to death, and, and probably is bleeding profusely, needs bandages. I can't imagine this guy's carrying a, first, a giant you know, professional first aid kit. My guess is he tore up his own shirts and tunic and things so that he could create bandages for this man. And then he takes his oil out and he puts oil on his wounds to ease his pain. And then he takes the wine and he pours the wine because it's a disinfectant and hopefully it'll keep his wounds from being infected right? He puts him on his own animal. So he was riding. He was a person of means. People that had money rode, didn't walk. Now he's walking in front of this man who he allows to ride. And he takes him to the next town. He takes him to an inn and he checks in, which means he's paying for the, for the room. And he took care of him, which probably means he spent the whole night checking on him. Probably meant that he stayed up with him through the night, right? The sermon in a sentence says, people who will live out the grace we profess to believe. This is active. It is not passive. We don't look at situations and circumstances and say, isn't that too bad? Somebody ought to do something. Rather, we look at the brokenness of our world, whether it's one person in need or a community in need, and we say, God, use me. And we move actively into our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ and a love for God and a love for others that shows that we believe what we profess. Faith is active, it's not passive. And my fifth observation in this text is that it's costly, it is not inexpensive. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. So two denarii, fundamentally, he basically paid for room and board and and, and some medical, you know, change the bandages and a little bit of attention. He basically paid for somewhere between seven and 12 days, right? So, So a week and then some. And if you think about, you know, kind of being beat up on the side of the road and having, you know, 10, 12 days to rest and recuperate and somebody change your bandages, chances are that would get you back to the right place. But notice he goes further and says, if he's got to stay longer, right, If if he's got some bones that are broken and I don't realize it or whatever, you do whatever's needed, and when I come back, I'll square it with you, and you know I will. You can trust me in that. Because that was the type of person he was, right? It's costly. He had to dig into his own pocket in order for this person to experience redemption for this person to experience healing i want you to watch the screen again got a, got another little 3 minute clip it's not a movie uh, it's actually uh, was on Channel 9 a while back, and it talks a little bit about the difference uh, between children in the St. Louis area growing up, some who come from homes where they they have some resources, and some who come from homes where their resources are severely limited. So watch the screens.
1: Much of the research reflected in the Forsake of All report examines the intersection of circumstances and outcomes let's simplify these complex issues by looking at one little girl's life we'll call her jasmine what if jasmine is born to college educated parents who have stable jobs and income let's call this path number one they start saving early for her future and in this case she also benefits from healthy food options and safe places to play she attends a high quality early childhood education center She grows up in a nurturing environment exposed to many fun learning activities and opportunities. But let's take a look at another path. Path number two. In this scenario, Jasmine is born to a single mother working two jobs. She's struggling to make ends meet, which makes spending time reading to and interacting with her daughter more difficult. Their neighborhood lacks safe places to play and also fresh and healthy food options. Jasmine stays with her grandmother during the day, spending many hours inside. Her grandma loves and watches all her grandchildren, but she lacks the resources to do learning activities. She's also limited by her own health problems. The research tells us the subtleties in Jasmine's story matter. She's already been impacted by her circumstances before she even gets to the first grade. Speaking of school, back on path number one, Jasmine's school district has many resources like state-of-the-art technology, tutoring, and college counselors. Jasmine and her classmates expect to attend college. In her other life, Jasmine is still intellectually curious. She wants to attend college, but receives little guidance. There's also no savings account to help her pay for it, and she lacks basic financial education. She suffers from health problems that make it more difficult to learn in school. As we'll see later, these divergent paths will continue to impact Jasmine's future. But what are the solutions? Remember the little girl we met earlier as an example? Well, let's say Jasmine is all grown up. The data tells us that the factors we saw impacting her childhood still continue to affect her into adulthood. Let's revisit her on path number one. After college, Jasmine finds a job working for an engineering firm. It provides her with benefits like health insurance, sick leave, and retirement savings. Fast forward and Jasmine is able to retire at 67. She spends time traveling and trying new activities. Jasmine also spends time with her family, who will benefit from the wealth she's able to leave behind. What about path number two? Let's take a look at how Jasmine's other life has played out. Jasmine works in a mall as a sales associate. She works hard, but is often worried about losing her job. Her schedule changes often and makes it difficult for her to finish her degree at a local community college. She doesn't make enough money to save for retirement. So in her old age, she still needs to work. Some days work is very difficult because of her health problems. In this scenario, Jasmine worries that she has very little to leave behind for her children.
0: A couple things about that. Um, first of all, I'm not saying by showing that that everybody should run out and adopt a a Jasmine, okay? but I'm also not saying that that wouldn't be a good idea either, right? The point is this that there are people all around us in a lot of different circumstances and a lot of different situations that need disciples of Jesus who will live out the grace that we profess to believe. If we really are trusting in Him, if we are startled by our own unrighteousness and, and we cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ as a means of our salvation and God moves our hearts to be hearts of compassion so that our attitude first and foremost is how can i help how can i make an impact how can i how can i change or or be a positive impact in changing someone's circumstances that we would be active and we understand the cost and we gladly bear it because we know it is a witness for the lord jesus christ where is that place for you and for me where is that place for us as a congregation I don't have all the answers to that question this morning because I think each of us need to individually pray about that. I'm praying about it for myself. I'm also praying about it for us as a congregation. I'm praying that God would grow our impact. I'm God that would would protect us from asking the wrong question the lawyer asked. The lawyer with smugness and and with this sense of self-justification says, and who is my neighbor? I pray that God would protect us from the wrong question because the wrong question leads you to the wrong answer 100% of the time. But I'm praying that the gospel would move in your heart and would move in my heart to ask the right question, right? Which is the question that Jesus asked. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor of the man who fell among robbers? The right question is to whom Am I being neighborly? Hendrickson put it this way in his commentary on Luke's gospel. He says, basically, it's a three-step process. First, we must sincerely confess that it is forever impossible for us by our own action to fulfill the laws of God demands. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. Secondly, we must, by God's grace and power by his spirit, place our trust in, In Christ Jesus. And thirdly, out of gratitude for the salvation which, because of Christ's merits, we have received as a free gift, we must now, guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit, live a life to the glory of God Triune. This means that even though, while on earth, we cannot love God and the neighbor perfectly, yet in principle, we begin to live in accordance with His law the law of love. The gospel moves us to ask the question, Who, to whom am I being neighborly? Self-justification is an illusion. It's an abstraction. There is no such thing. Every human being that ever walked the planet beyond the Lord Jesus himself is in need and was in need and will be in need of God's grace and mercy, which is freely provided on the cross of Christ, in which the vast majority of people in this room, the pastor included, profess to believe. However, where is the application of grace in my life? Where is it in your life? You see, grace must move. It must live. It must breathe in us and through us that we would be instruments through which God gives others the life-giving grace of Jesus I want to bring you back for just a moment to Les Mis and Jean Valjean uh, and Bishop Muriel. I want to read for you just a, a short paragraph for, about that scene uh, that we watched. By his theft, Jean Valjean shows that he, will, he is still chained to hatred and anger. By his generosity, Muriel operates a spiritual purchase that substitutes goodwill, gentleness, and peace. In other words, God... For this satanic mentality, while Christ alone can redeem with the sacrifice of his life, his bishop can perform an equally effective exchange. In divesting himself of his silver, Mary will invest in Valjean. All he demands of the receipt of the recipient is that he prove worthy of the promise that he could not have made in his prison of sin, but that he will have made following his liberation. And then the author goes on to say the Catholic writer Teresa Malcolm says that after Valjean leaves, Monsignor Marielle never again appears in the story, but he is the soul of the novel. He who sowed love where there was hatred, light where there was darkness. I would argue as we wrap up here this morning that she almost got it right. The bishop is not the hero of this story. The only reason the bishop exhibited grace was because the grace of God had touched him but he believed that grace of God for himself. He trusted that what God was doing was transforming his life, that he was redeeming him, that he was answering the question that he could not answer for himself, how can I have eternal life? But he was also calling him to live a life of compassion, a life of active care, of costly care. Because that's what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. Father, we thank you for bringing it to bear on our hearts and our souls this morning, our minds. Father, I know many of us desire to live out the grace that we profess. And certainly our community, our culture, our world needs it so desperately. Not only that we could relieve some temporal suffering, uh, that could be true, and that would be a huge blessing if we could care well for uh, kind of the, the jasmine too of, of, of the story. And Lord, we pray that you would show us opportunities, not just on 2028, not just on, on one day, but that you would show us opportunities day in and day out where people are hurting, where we can bring the salve of the gospel to their lives. But Father, more deeply and more importantly, so that we would have the opportunity to live and speak the truth that Jesus' grace is what gives us life, that it is his compassion, that it is his mercy, that it is his free gift to us that is transforming us and calling us to be agents of his transformation, that others would know him for all of eternity.
1: This we pray in his name, amen.